Welcome to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. I'm Brian Hartigan. Today, John Eric Hexum is largely forgotten for his contribution to early 80s television. What he is remembered for, however, is his bizarre death at the age of 27, the result of a Prop 44 Magnum handgun that may or may not have been negligently left in his hands. After a meteoric rise under the call sheet of a primetime network show, one that wouldn't make it past its first season, Hexum faced the prospect of going back to bussing tables at a noodle shop in Venice Beach, until a seemingly routine audition put him face to face with one of TV's biggest names and one of its largest personalities. That person would help catapult Hexum onto the covers of magazines and the supermarket tabloids. That was in June of 1983, just 16 months before his date with Destiny on October 12, 1984. So on our last episode, we looked at John Eric Hexum's early life and the contribution his hard-working single mom made to his non-stop work ethic. Once in Hollywood, he began putting the same obsessive drive he'd had in his early days into expanding his newfound celebrity. He was taking numerous acting classes along with voice, dance, and movement because he was determined to make himself more than what he was. What he was was handsome with a side of charming, but Hollywood is filled with those types. And though Voyagers failed to launch, it did get him some recognizability. A few notches up on the new TVQ score, perhaps. And with that newfound recognition, John Eric Hexum found himself with a seat at the Hollywood table, where he eventually caught the eye of one of TV's top producers. But that fame also put him on the path to a hotel room swing set, where that 44 Magnum sits on the bedside table but I'm getting ahead of myself. Whether it was Brooke Shields, Elle McPherson, or Christy Brinkley, the early 80s belonged to the supermodel. Legendary TV producer Aaron Spelling knew a trend when he smelled one, and he tried to capture that catwalk zeitgeist with a film called The Look in early 1983. The story centers on Tyler Burnett, a handsome ranch hand plucked from obscurity by a fashionista to become a supermodel in New York City. With a script written by A.J. Carruthers, Spelling had only one woman in mind for the female lead, Joan Collins, who vamped up screens on his show Dynasty. The trick was casting a young, handsome dude to play the reverse Pygmalion role of Tyler. Not only would they have to have the right rugged look, they would also have to be able to hold their own against a demanding diva. According to Hexum, just about every jobless 20-something guy in Hollywood went in to read for that part. Hexum himself auditioned five times, until finally a screen test with Collins convinced her he was the guy. Never one to argue with the star of the show, Spelling gave Hexum a check for nine grand and told him to go clothes shopping in Beverly Hills. 
producers of The Look, changed the title to the double entendre Making of a Male Model, and production began on July 10, 1983, the same day as the last original Voyagers episode aired on NBC. So if anyone was the queen of the tabloids in the early 80s, it was probably Joan Collins. Every move she made, every drama, dalliance, and divorce was slapped on the covers of The Globe, The Star, and The National Enquirer. So it's not much of a surprise that during the summer of 83, while Making of a Male Model was filming, Hexum found himself caught in the crossfire. The ragmags claimed there was tension on the set of Male Model, and that the two stars bickered and argued in front of the crew. Hexum denied any acrimony, though he did admit there was a little friction. She's a very domineering person, he said, but egos abound in this town, and I guess I've got one too. Whatever onset tiffs Collins and Hexum had, however, they couldn't have been serious, because near the end of filming, Collins approached the producers of Dynasty and demanded that they screen test Hexum for a new role on the show. See, the writers had created a character called Dex Dexter, who was supposed to be Collins' new love interest during the upcoming season, but producers weren't keen on casting Hexum. Though he read for the part, he ultimately took himself out of the running because he didn't want to be tied to a long-term contract. I don't know if I would have gotten it anyway, he said later. Producers went on to cast Michael Nader in the role, and Nader would go on to appear in 145 more episodes of Dynasty until its cancellation in 89. But Collins and Hexum hit the tabloids again. In the July 16, 1983 issue of TV Guide, the magazine's grapevine section ran an item that Hexum and Collins were, quote, seen looking very chummy at two recent Hollywood dinners, unquote. And that's all the tabloids needed to start plastering pics of the stars on its covers. Collins was newly divorced, and Hexum was newly single, having recently broken up with Debbie. That was my own fault, he admitted, because I was always too busy. And Hexum and Collins had been seen a lot around Hollywood that summer. He had become her arm candy to various functions and charity events. But were they romantic? What incredible bullshit, Hexum said at the time. Though he did admit to Inc. Magazine, I'm getting a lot of publicity out of being seen with her, but at the same time she gets a certain degree of notoriety for hanging around a young guy. ABC scheduled the making of a male model for November sweeps, a period when the networks deploy stunt programming in order to get higher ratings. November is when the ratings are counted by A.C. Nielsen, which then allows the networks to price its advertising slots accordingly. With the movie expected to air November 9th, Hexum went into full PR mode while maintaining his tireless efforts to earn and maintain his newfound notoriety. He booked appearances on talk shows, including Merv Griffin and Regis Philbin. He was scheduled to drop by Good Morning America and The Today Show and CNN, and even appeared as a guest judge on Dance Fever. In Hexum's little black day calendar, which he took everywhere, were also photo shoots for TV Guide magazine, People, and Us magazines. But for some reason, ABC made the surprising decision to move the making of a male model out of the important sweeps period and slotting it in for Sunday, October 9th, smack dab in the middle of the Columbus Day holiday weekend. As a result of this scheduling change, those magazine cover photo shoots went away, 
and some of those talk show appearances would happen after the movie had aired. Despite this setback, Hexum went back to work. Besides mulling an offer on a three-picture deal, he also posed for another poster, this one from photographer Greg Gorman. His first poster had recently entered its fifth printing, selling over a million copies. Meanwhile, he posed for a fitness book and a beefcake calendar called Buns. He was November. More seriously, though, Hexum started his own production company, J.E. Hexum Productions. I'm saving my pennies, he told writer Henry Edgar, and I'm going to option some scripts, so I'll be in a position to pick my own roles. Until those scripts came in, however, Hexum took meetings around town. Lots and lots of meetings. Hal Needham, the director of Cannonball Run, wanted Hexum to star in a big-screen adaptation of the World War II comic strip Terry and the Pirates. Until Universal fired Needham and that job went away. He also took a meeting with Bo Derrick, who wanted him to star alongside her in the mermaid comedy The Deep Blue Sea. Hexum politely passed on that role. I'm not going to be trapped into doing something just for the money, he was quoted as saying. I was a busboy last June, and I don't care if I'm a busboy again next June. In the meantime, while waiting for the making of a male model to air, Hexum seemed to sour on the project. In letters home to friends, he called the movie trashy and tacky, and admitted to them he hadn't actually bothered watching it. It was a whole lot more exploitive than I anticipated, he said later. I didn't realize how they were going to package the show and how many scenes were going to be shirtless for no apparent reason. I had to take my shirt off when it made no sense. When I saw the footage, I got extremely embarrassed. Critics shrugged at Mel Model, calling it something for the ladies and an exploitation film with a premise they'd seen before. But viewers didn't necessarily agree with Hexum or the critics. When the movie premiered on October 9th, it was a massive hit for ABC, catching the eyeballs of 22% of all TV watchers that night. That's 18.9 million people. Now, to put that into perspective, more people watched that movie than they did the 2022 Oscars, which drew 16.6 million. For that week, Male Model was the fourth most watched program behind Aftermash, Dallas, and NFL Football. Ironically, it tied with Collins' own dynasty for the number four slot. Almost immediately, ABC approached Hexum about turning that film into a weekly series, though Hexum didn't want to retread old ground. The hunk thing is not the direction I really want to go, he told writer Steve Reich, but the movie is going to get me a lot of publicity. You have to be known in this town to get a job. That's how they cast, and the making of a male model will help me with future opportunities. Sure enough, he was right. With the success of Male Model and its $50,000 paycheck, Hexum bought a modest, white-bricked, three-bedroom ranch-style house in the San Fernando Valley in Burbank. But even in finally splurging with his money, Hexum remained practical. He told Merv Griffin he'd bought the house sight unseen in a foreclosure sale, so he didn't really realize it was right under the flight path of the Burbank airport. Sitting in the palm-tree-filled backyard, he had to stop speaking when a plane went over. The house shakes, he told UPI, but I got a good deal. Ever the frugal miser, 
Hexham insisted on driving a $250 black 1954 Chevy Bel Air. The only luxury Hexham afforded himself was a Yamaha grand piano, which neighbors could hear him playing on the rare occasions he was home. Hexham also dipped into his savings to pay back his mom for her financial and emotional support over the years. He bought Greta Hexham a $100,000 townhouse condo in nearby Silmar, California, and hired her as his personal assistant. She loved that job, though fearing whispers of nepotism, she used her maiden name, Jane Paulson, in Hexham's business dealings. Greta handled the fan mail, worked with the accountant, scheduled his meetings, and made phone calls and ran errands. And it was Hexham's mom who was the one who went about finding a couple of roommates for his Kenwood Avenue home to save money on the mortgage payments. Besides, he said, this is just where I sleep. Neighbors reported only seeing Hexham early in the mornings or late in the evenings when he blasted into the driveway in his Chevy, changed his clothes, and squealed out again, always rushing to the next thing. Not only was Hexham auditioning, he was keeping up with his acting lessons as well, now taking five three-hour classes per week. Plus, he'd added improv, opera, and jazz dancing to his almost daily self-improvement regimen. When he wasn't working, he was working out three days a week, usually listening to Pat Benatar while working on a Nautilus machine. At UCLA, he would swim and dive off the school's 10-meter platform. The only time he allowed himself for fun was at the arcade for Pac-Man and the occasional bowling night with his friends. Although, they would often take bets on how many games they could get through before Hexham called it a night. He really needed his eight hours of sleep, said his friend, photographer Christy Jenkins. By all accounts, Hexham didn't drink to excess or do drugs. He had really only one vice, the occasional cigarette. Or two vices, if you include his obsession with work. I love my work so much it scares me, he said in 1983. And he hated waiting around for something to happen. I go crazy. I've had it. I've only been off six weeks and I can't wait to get back to work, he said. In the fall of 1983, Hexham auditioned for the role of quarterback Pat Trammell in the indie feature film The Bear about the life of football coach Bear Bryant. Then, in November, producers of the glitzy primetime soap Hotel offered Hexham a guest spot on the show with no audition necessary. Hotel kind of served as the mid-80s version of Fantasy Island, with James Broland in the Mr. Rourke role. Hexham joined the show's 14th episode, Tomorrow's, as Prince Eric in a Cinderella story featuring Dynasty's Emma Sams. Sams, who had just broken up with entertainer Marvin Hamlish, was instantly smitten with her co-star. I remember watching him in the making of a male model and thinking he was the most gorgeous man I'd ever seen, Sams told the book Soap Opera Babylon. I dreamed of meeting him. Well, meeting became seeing, and the two began dating casually. Only casually, because Hexham was again too busy for anything more. By the end of the hotel shoot, Hexham got word that he'd been cast in The Bear, and filming was to begin in Georgia before Christmas. It would mark his first feature film role, but more importantly, it would put Hexham's hard work to the test. There was some real acting involved in The Bear, and Hexham, who had just turned 26, could finally keep his shirt on.
So Coach Paul Bryant was, is a legend in Alabama. Considered to be one of the greatest college coaches ever, the Bear, as everyone called him, had been hounded by producers ever since the 70s to turn his life into a motion picture. Bryant was reluctant until his former quarterback, Joe Namath, himself something of an actor and model, persuaded Bryant to go all in on Hollywood. In the early 80s, Bryant approved a script by Michael Caine, not the actor, with Richard Serafian directing. Sadly, Bryant would die of a heart attack in early 83 before the film went into production. With a cast that boasted Harry Dean Stanton and Gary Busey as Bryant, the film was to chronicle Bryant's 40-year coaching career, a monumental task and one fans of the Bear weren't exactly thrilled about. Bryant was, is, revered by his fans. And they weren't keen on the idea of boiling down his legacy into 90 minutes. For his part, Hexum was excited about the opportunity to play Pat Trammell, one of Bryant's other legendary quarterbacks. Trammell and Bryant had a lifelong friendship that was cut short when Trammell died of testicular cancer in 1968. Hexum particularly relished the hospital scene in the script in which Bryant says goodbye to the cancer-ridden Trammell. Hexum dove into research for the role, talking with Trammell's Crimson Tide teammates and even staying with the Trammell family while in Alabama. The role, he said, would be unlike anything he'd done before. To be a southern redneck and to be cursing all the time, and to be a little overbearing and chauvinistic, it's a great departure, a great character, Hexum said. He knew that his previous roles had slapped a grade-A beef label on his reputation, and that the pretty boy stereotype was a hole he had to dig out of. One of the first steps toward an image change was cutting his hair down to a buzz cut in order to be period accurate. This gave him an anachronistic look for the mid-80s. They shaved everyone's heads, he told AM Los Angeles. They tell me it's very fashionable. In January 1984, Hexum finally filmed that big deathbed scene, the scene that he thought would cement his reputation as a real actor. He and Gary Busey spent nine hours on the scene. Hexum told friends it was the most rewarding work of his short career. But after filming wrapped on the bear, Hexum didn't take a break. In early 84, he was glad-handing independent TV station owners, hoping they would pick up Voyagers in syndication. Normally, a series needs to run at least three seasons for it to be attractive to TV stations for reruns. But Hexum's charm, and the show's kid-friendly after-school flavor, helped make Voyagers the rare exception to the rule. And around the time Hexum was crisscrossing the country, going from station to station, producer Glenn A. Larson was plotting his next hit TV show. And Larson wanted Hexum as his star. If there was a Mount Rushmore of 80s TV producers, it would probably include Aaron Spelling, Stephen J. Cannell, Donald P. Belisario, and Glenn A. Larson. From 1979 to 89, those four executive producers had their names attached to no less than 53 one-hour dramas. Larson himself accounted for 14 of those shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Quincy M.E., Knight Rider, and The Fall Guy. 
But in 1984, Larson was on something of a losing streak. After being lured from Universal TV to Fox Television for a massive payday, the producer had suffered a string of flops, including the much-maligned sci-fi series Manimal, regularly voted one of the worst television shows of all time. The quality dip, he said, was a result of him spreading himself too thin. So, for the 1984-85 pilot season, Larson focused all his efforts on creating one good show. And to that end, Larson took pages from a number of 1984 zeitgeists. He was going to create a can't-miss show by tapping into what was commercially appealing at the time. All Larson had to do was flip through channels to find inspiration. Music videos were hot thanks to MTV. So were male-female pairings thanks to the hits Remington Steel, Heart to Heart, and Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Also in vogue were the big, bold fashions of the day, as well as, by extension, the supermodels who wore them. A modeling series called Paper Dolls with Morgan Fairchild was already in the works over at ABC, while NBC had Partners in Crime starring fashion plate detectives Lonnie Anderson and Linda Carter. And finally, there was the Hollywood trend toward Vietnam veterans. Movies like Missing in Action and Rambo made it hip to be a vet for some reason. Throwing all those elements into a blender, Larson poured a smoothie about Mac Harper, a special ops mercenary who goes undercover as a model to ferret out a killer. For whatever reason, he called it Harper's Bizarre. And Larson knew he needed a hunk for the role, but not just any hunk. Someone athletic and with a wry sense of humor. So that's why Larson called John Eric Hexum. Hexum was ready to say no to the idea of another mostly shirtless role. He wanted to grow and expand as an actor, especially on the heels of the bear. It's possible, however, that Bob Lamond pressured Hexum into taking Larson's offer. After all, Lamond and his partner Lois Zetter had recently lost their cash cow client, John Travolta. In the trade magazines, it was reported that that split was amicable. Lamond and Zetter had shepherded Travolta's career since he was 16, and he wanted to move on. But one gossip columnist reported that Travolta had been unhappy, that Lamond refused to put him up for big roles, and that the parting was acrimonious. Either way, Travolta's exit left Lamont stable, with only a few up-and-coming, underemployed, and notably hunky actors, and a handful of aging New York stage actresses. So Lamont may have urged Hexum to take another look at Larson's offer. Now, not only was the producer offering Hexum's script approval, but also a say in the show's editing, ensuring that Hexum couldn't be unduly beefcaked. Lamond would get credit on the show as a production consultant, in addition to the 10% of Hexum's $30,000 per episode salary. Eventually, Hexum signed on to one of those long-term contracts he'd been avoiding, and he went to Larson's house in early 1984 to shoot a presentation pilot. Essentially, what came out was a music video set to Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero that had Hexum and Camo toting an M16 around Larson's jungle-like backyard. In order to get around the fact that Hexum still had his bare buzz cut, Larson shelled out for a top-of-the-line wig for the shoot. Larson took the music video to CBS, and even without a script, the network ordered him to go out and shoot a proper pilot episode. Actress and former fashion model Jennifer O'Neill was soon cast as Hexum's co-star Danielle, a.k.a. Danny, in Harper's Bazaar, 
but the show's bumpy road to TV screens started almost immediately. First, the magazine Harper's Bazaar threatened a lawsuit if the title wasn't changed. O'Neill hit upon the idea of cover-up, a play on her role as a spokesperson for CoverGirl makeup. Then the show's Bonnie Tyler sung theme song was deemed way too expensive, so Hexum suggested a cover version sung by his new girlfriend, Elizabeth Daly. Hexum had known Daly since his first acting classes in L.A., but he didn't fall for the singer-actor until seeing her in the hit play Tarzana Tansy earlier in the year. With the legalities out of the way, filming began on the two-hour pilot, which carried an astronomical, for the time, $700,000 price tag. But CBS liked what Larson had done with their money and ordered the show for 13 episodes for its fall schedule. As filming got underway in the series in June 1984, the nation's TV critics gathered in Phoenix, Arizona, to get a taste of the network's new fall shows. In interview after interview, Hexum called his character a cross between James Bond, Indiana Jones, and Mr. Magoo. He also admitted that he had high hopes for the show and his part in it. Glenn Larson is a very successful producer, and Jennifer's great, he espoused. There's a lot of draw from the glitz and glamour of modeling, and there should be some draw from the success of male model, too. Larson told the press he looked at cover-up as the first international detective show and promised that it would be set in lots of exotic locales. In her interviews, O'Neill concentrated on the show's character dynamic, likening it to The Thin Man's Nick and Nora. There's drama, there's humor, and the piece is about relationships, she said. But the critics weren't having any of it. After viewing a rough cut of the pilot, they quickly sniffed out Larson's pop culture mashup and derided the sameness of it all. I don't apologize for it being commercial, Hexum said later, because it's necessitated by the business. If you're not commercial, you're not going to be successful. But it was the mere idea of Hexum playing a Vietnam veteran or a veteran of Laos that drew snickers from the critics during the screening. CBS's own press release touted Mac Harper as, quote, a super soldier with skills in martial arts, chemical interrogation, marksmanship, weaponry, and foreign language fluency. Washington Post critic Tom Shale scoffed, he speaks nine languages, English may or may not be among them. The acting was further labeled as amateurish and unconvincing by the press, and the beefcake label reared its ugly head. Hexum is built like a Baldwin locomotive, one female critic sniffed, and his shirt seems to be at the laundry in almost every scene. As for Larson's promise of international locations, wrote one critic, the pilot takes place in a Central American country called La Costa, but the neighborhoods look like Sunset Boulevard with a filter over the lens. Another reported that as their fellow TV critics watched the pilot in the ballroom of the Arizona Biltmore, there were, quote, sighs of relief, unquote, when the episode ended. Hexum felt compelled to clap back. I'm not concerned with the erroneous opinions of the press. I just did 200 interviews in Phoenix. People fired questions at me at this big news conference, rude and sarcastic as shit. I need to do those interviews, but I won't take abuse from them. I'm not intimidated by them at all. Still, cover-up was off to an auspicious start and the critics would soon have the last word. Yeah. 
CBS premiered Cover-Up on Sunday, September 22, 1984, with a two-hour movie event, and the ratings were solid. Not only did the show improve on its lead-in, Mike Hammer, but it also held its own against the premiere of Aaron Spelling's love detective series, Finder of Lost Loves. Meanwhile, Cover-Up's 14 share in the ratings also handily beat NBC's convoluted Knight Rider clone called Hot Pursuit. And by the end of that week, Hexam and Company ranked 32nd out of 57 shows. In the newspapers, some reviewers responded favorably to the show's use of current hit songs and its authentic take on fashion. They praised producers for including Perry Ellis as a consultant and wrote of their eagerness to see upcoming episodes featuring Yves Saint Laurent and Christian Dior. But the ratings and the fashion reviews were the only two bright spots for the show's general reception. Fred Rothenberger of the Associated Press called the show offensive and pretentious. Mark Dwadziak of the Akron Beacon Journal called it nonsensical as it, quote, served up gagging portions of beefcake, cheesecake, and bologna, unquote. Nick Coleman of the Minneapolis Star Tribune called it, quote, the most putrid show of the new fall season, unquote. But the main complaint from critics throughout all those reviews was that Hexham and O'Neill had zero chemistry. Originally, Larson had set out to capture some of that male-female dynamic of Remington Steele and Scarecrow and Mrs. King, but cover-up failed to capture even an ounce of that will-they-won't-they they sizzle. More than one critic thought they came off as mother and son instead of potential love interests. O'Neill even later told UPI that Hexham reminded her of her brother. Not helping matters was the 11-year age gap between Hexham and O'Neill. It's possible in casting O'Neill that Larson was thinking back to the tabloid covers featuring Hexham and Joan Collins. But Hexham's on-screen bickering with O'Neill sometimes didn't seem like acting. Off-screen, the two only had a cursory relationship and sometimes seemed downright hostile toward each other in interviews. O'Neill often presented herself as being overly serious about the show and her role and her career, while Hexham maintained his fun-loving outlook. Their real-life mismatched personas showed up in the final product on the screen. And then, of course, there was the hunk question although Hexham tried to assure reporters that having a shirt off was only about selling the show initially. I think the beefcake aspect is disproportionately represented in the pilot, he said. But again, he wouldn't apologize for its commercial appeal. This is television, he said. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be commercial. Those elements are very much a part of other successful shows like Dallas and Dynasty. But as cover-up moved into its second and third weeks, it became apparent behind the scenes that the show was in creative and ratings trouble. The critical reaction to the tone of the show didn't fall on deaf ears. While Glenn Larson hatched a plan to right the ship, Hexham drove headlong into beefing up his own personal brand. He and his manager, Bob Lamond, contacted the NFL about possibly replacing the late John Facenda as the narrator of NFL films. Later, he posed for fashion photo shoots for GQ magazine. Next up was the March of Dimes benefit in New Orleans. After that was a lengthy interview in Playgirl magazine. Uh, just an interview, though. 
and finally he agreed to appear on the ninth annual CBS special, Circus of the Stars. A staple of late 70s and early 80s TV, Circus, like Battle of the Network Stars, often featured television actors and actresses like viewers had never seen them before. So, alongside people like Tony Randall, Tim Conway, and Webster's Emmanuel Lewis, Hexum was to perform a high-wire walk on the special. And the taping of this tightrope act was scheduled for Saturday, October 13th. Meanwhile, Glenn Larson had decided to make some changes behind the scenes at cover-up. The show had dropped to number 52 of 62 shows, and Larson knew he couldn't afford another flop, especially given his huge payday to create hits for 20th Century Fox television. Larson's first move was the firing of writer Brian Allen Lane, although according to the book The Show Must Go On, Lane walked off the show over creative differences. After only a few episodes, Larson could see that the show had become too dark and serious, and he needed someone to inject some heart and whimsy. That someone came in the form of writer-producer Bob Shane, who had impressed Larson with his script for Harpergate, the show's third episode. Shane was a former variety show and sitcom writer who had cut his teeth on Good Times and on John Travolta's Welcome Back, Cotter. More recently, he created the CBS series WizKids, about teenage hackers who solved mysteries together. But most importantly, Shane had worked with Larson before on Magnum P.I. and Knight Rider, so Larson knew the kind of stories he would be getting from him. Today, a show that is in need of a retool might shut down for a few weeks while writers come up with some new stories, but Larson elected to plow ahead with production on cover-up, with no break. Shane and his writers found themselves having to throw out the show's planned episodes and start from scratch, with only a couple of days to write new scripts. Hexum wasn't quiet about his frustrations about how things were going behind the scenes. To his friends, he complained that Larson's promise of creative control hadn't really come to fruition yet, and to the press, he was honest, if not equitable. I'm really unhappy with a lot of things about cover-up, he said, but I'm sure that a lot of people at Exxon are unhappy with the way that company is run too. Unfortunately, Hexum's unhappiness would only be compounded by the release of his feature film debut, The Bear. Much like cover-up, The Bear may have been doomed even before cameras started rolling. When the film was announced, fans of the Alabama Crimson Tide football team were vocal in their outrage. Backlash was so strong that the University of Alabama ended up refusing permission for the production to shoot on its campus. Filming would have to be moved to nearby Georgia which further riled the Bama faithful. Fans of Coach Bryan himself were also against the casting of Gary Busey in the title role. Though he had been nominated for an Oscar in 1979 for his turn as Buddy Holly, Busey's career had since floundered. Fans demanded someone with more cinematic heft in the part, like George C. Scott. Busey even reportedly received death threats and would later apologize for his role in the production. Then there were the reviews of the finished film, which premiered September 28, 1984. Surprisingly, college fans were complimentary, saying it felt authentic. Hexum also received praise from those who personally knew Pat Trammell. The response from critics, however, was another story. 
One critic retitled the film The Boar. Critic Michael Walsh wrote it was substandard in every way, while Gene Siskel called it lackluster and Roger Ebert found it dreadfully boring. They both gave the film thumbs down, though this is before they used thumbs in their reviews. To make matters worse, when the film premiered, Hexum was crushed to see his role had been significantly chopped out of the final product. He lamented to photographer and friend Brian O'Dowd, Can you believe they cut three quarters of my role out of the picture? One of those cuts was Hexum's proudest moment, his dramatic deathbed scene, the scene that had made him excited about the project in the first place. That scene was one of 14 Seraphian left on the cutting room floor. The bear cost more than $8 million to make, but it only made back 2.6 of its budget. And of the 168 movies released in 1984, the bear ranked 132nd, which made it a verified box office flop. Hexum may have been worried his feature film career was over before it really began. And that worry may have been on his mind during the week of October 9, 1984, when production began on Golden Opportunity. That episode would mark cover-up's seventh, and sadly, Hexum's last. On the next episode of Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History, John Eric Hexum grapples with the fickle finger of fame, and he finds himself bewildered by the bad reviews for cover-up, the behind-the-scenes strife that comes on a failing network TV show, and the never-ending efforts he has to undertake in order to keep himself in the public eye, as he grows more determined than ever to get his career, and the show, back on track. But as he does, he soon finds himself at the mercy of a CBS executive, who decrees that cover-up needs to try to appeal to viewers expecting more, quote, action, unquote. Now, as we'd seen in the controversy surrounding Voyagers, action in Hollywood really means violence. And violence, of course, means guns. Thank you for listening to Dark Tube. The show is written, edited, and narrated by me, Brian Hartigan. Music provided by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio and Aries Beats. You can find their music on YouTube and Spotify. If you like this show, please spread the word. Subscribing to this channel is always appreciated, as is sharing us on social media or leaving a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at tube underscore dark, on Instagram at dark tube TV history, that's one word, or Facebook at dark tube TV history. Our YouTube channel will be launching soon, featuring short form video versions of our stories. You can check that out and subscribe on YouTube at dark tube. If you have suggestions for a story to cover, comments on our episodes, or if you have the inside scoop on a wicked part of television's past, drop me an email at darktubetvhistory at gmail.com. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, be sure to check out our show notes. 
And if you like what we're doing here and would like to contribute, please visit our Patreon account and consider signing up as a patron. That's at patreon.com slash darktubetvhistory. Members will be eligible to receive transcripts of our sources on demand, episodes and scripts, and a few other goodies. So please consider donating at patreon slash darktubetvhistory. We'll be back soon with the third part of a four-part investigation into John Eric Hepsom's tragic death with an episode called The Incident. So until then, stay tuned and don't touch that dial for more of the scandalous past of our favorite pastime. This has been a production of Hot Mush Media.